why are we here? Why are we here? I'm tempted to be a little more specific to you and say, why are you here? And so maybe you should answer it that way and, and it's a little less personal if we ask it, why are we here? I think, why do we gather? I think you might would answer, if I were to ask any of you to come up here and, and answer on behalf of the church just publicly, I think most of us would have some answer that would be at least in, in proximity to the answer of we're here to worship God. We're here to worship the Lord. Well, I would ask you then, what, what does that mean to worship the Lord? And I think that we could say, and probably as a church, we've done a, a pretty fair job, maybe a good job, if I dare say so, of, of telling you worship is glorifying the Lord. And so we challenge you. We, we come together and we focus on the fact that we are here to glorify God. And you might put that in terms of to lift him up, to praise him, to honor him, to magnify the Lord, and you would be correct. That, that's part of worship. We gather as a body of Christ to lift up, to glorify our great God. There is another part of worship that I want to bring to our attention this morning that I'm afraid in my own personal spiritual walk and perhaps even leading us as a church, I have not focused on, and uh, it is shame on my part, and that is that I think that we would have to say, it, as we gather to worship as a church, worship means for us to encounter God. To encounter God, well, what does that mean? I, I think it at least means two things as we gather, and that is to experience the moving and filling of the Spirit. As believers, if you are here and you are a believer in Christ, the Bible says you're indwelled by the Spirit of God, but there's also filling of the Spirit, and I think that part of corporate gathering is that we're here expecting, desiring, asking God to fill us with His Spirit, but it's also to hear from God, and that second part of an encounter with God, to hear from God, is what I focused on even this week. And so let me ask this follow-up question, and that would be, wouldn't it be absolutely tragic if you and I were to meet as churches, and as a church here, let's, let's make it just for us, wouldn't it be tragic if we were to meet and we stopped encountering God, yet kept on meeting just like nothing had ever changed. Business as usual. It's Sunday, so we go to church. Why are you here? Because it's Sunday. Because my family's always going, because it's what you do on Sunday. What if everything is great and you and I walk away from this place and we think, well, we've been to church, we've done our duty today, but you have not met, had an encounter with God. You've not walked away hearing from God. And part of that is our own experience, our own preparation of being here. And I want to ask you this morning, have you come expecting to hear from the Lord today? And maybe let me make that a little more uh, deep in your heart. Have you come desperate to hear from God today? No doubt there may be a few of you that are going through a really, really hard time in your life. You are at a point where you are desperate to hear from God. And so you have come to this place hoping, God, would you just do something in my life today? And I think we've all experienced coming to the, the body of Christ, gathering together at times in our life, desperate to hear from the Lord. But I'm not sure that we gather every week in desperation, desiring to hear from God. 
in our text this morning, we are going to at least set the context in this manner where Jesus is leaving the temple. And I want you to understand the context of Matthew's gospel that Jesus in chapter 21, the Son of God, the King, the Messiah, the very presence of God, Jesus is God, and he has come into the temple, and those who were in the temple, those who were religious people in Israel, they encountered God, but they did not have a relationship with God. So while they were going through their religious practices, they did not even know and recognize that it was God whose presence was in the temple again. And so we'll mention in the sermon in just a few moments that in Ezekiel chapter 11, the, the glory of God departs from the temple and it goes and rests up on the Mount of Olives. We're going to see Jesus do the exact same thing yet again in clear symbolism in this text. And the people that were the religious leaders, those who had the, uh, the, the best religious practices of their day, did not even know that it was God that was there, and they did not even recognize that it was God that left. As a matter of fact, those who had their religious practices, and they went through them religiously every day, every week, they met Jesus in the temple, and they attacked him, they questioned him, they criticized him, they demonized him, they even strategized to kill him. And so I come before you this morning calling you to prayer and saying, Certainly, we have not come to this building because we think the presence of God is in a building today. No, we're New Testament believers and the presence of God indwells us as believers. He is in us. So we gather as the temple of God. But we gather corporately because in the body gathered, as we gather as the temple, as the people of God corporately gathered, we expect to hear from the Lord through his word, in our singing, through prayer. We gather for that. And I think we would have to say how much more tragic if those who are indwelled by the spirit of God gather and don't encounter God together. And so I ask you this morning, are you here? Why are we here? And then I want to invite you to pray and say, Lord, if I am, if you are desperate for God, beg him. Lord, let me hear from you today. In your word. If you didn't come desperate for him, would you pray, Spirit, would you give me a sense of desperation that I do not want to walk out of this place without hearing from you? Church, I think it's very possible that way, way, way too often. We go through the religious practices of coming together and we walk away thinking we've done church and we've not encountered God and how tragic that is for us. So today, would you in these moments before we get into this text, go to the Lord in prayer with me and beg Him for what we want to encounter you. Not only do we want to glorify you and lift you up and praise you, we want to do that with genuine hearts. We want to encounter you. We want to be filled by your spirit. We want to corporately know and hear from you today. Pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your grace and your mercy upon us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. You are the only God, the true God. And we have come to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who made the promise to send salvation and did so not by the blood of bulls and rams, not by just overlooking our sin, but by the blood of your one and only Son, whom you sent to become a man, whom you sent to take on flesh so that he might die for us, to make sacrifice, propitiation for our sins. And Lord, it is our sins that need Redemption and need forgiveness, and we have gathered because we believe that you have taken care of them at the cross. Lord, we've gathered not just because you've forgiven our sins, but because you overcame the penalty of sin, death, hell, and the grave, and Jesus rose from the dead, and we serve a risen Savior today. Jesus, you promised that you would send your Spirit, so we're indwelled by the Spirit of God as we gather in the name of that is above every name we pray that we this morning would be desperate to hear from you, that your word would speak to us, that we, with the thousands of things that could draw our attention away this morning, we would focus our minds and our hearts on the word of the Lord, and we would hear from you. And we would go away from this place, not just saying, I've been to church, but we would go away from this place today saying, I encountered God today. Give us by your spirit of desperation. Lord, we don't seek to be a club or a group of people just meeting because we are wanting to be religious. We are meeting because we desire a vital, life-giving, living relationship with our God. And so we we'll move us. Move among us. Fill us with your spirit. May the hopeless find hope. The lost find their way in Christ. The hurt find healing. The discouraged find encouragement. May all of us find perseverance in Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 24. Much made about these two chapters over the history of interpretation and that is because there's a lot of interest in the return of Christ. When will it happen? How will I know that it's happened? What's going to happen around His return? And what will happen after Jesus returns? As a matter of fact, if any of you have taught Sunday school or led youth or done anything like that, every pastor will tell you the most popular request in any church is for a sermon series on the book of Revelation because we are all interested in the return of Jesus. In our text today, the disciples ask Jesus two questions related to the end, related to his return. And so we need to set the context just briefly to get us into this text. Hopefully that we would then get a grasp on this text. But let me just tell you, I think that at the end of today, you might go away from this place, maybe even disagreeing with some of the specifics of what I'm going to tell you about the text, but certainly not the point of the text. So this is probably one of the most debated chapters in all of Matthew's gospel, maybe even the New Testament. And I told the 830 service, I'll tell you, I study every week and, and read multiple commentaries. But every week there are four commentaries that I read on uh, the passage that I'm going to preach. None of them agree on the specifics of how to interpret this particular text. All of them agree on the point of the text. 
So when you leave here today, you and I, I hope, will be able to say we can uh, play around with where, where, when and where does this happen, but we can't play around with what God is telling us through this text. So the point of the text, the application of the text for us today will be solid and sure. Jesus and Matthew, as he's writing and reporting to us, Jesus' words is not uh, 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 shy about that. He tells us exactly what Jesus is telling us, but you may read it and think, oh, I think this happens there. I think this happens there. Our timeline of the text may be a little different, but let's not miss the point of the text. So some context. Jesus entered Jerusalem in chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. He went into the temple and began to, to teach and he began to show his authority, both by the way that he came into Jerusalem and his teaching in the temple. Jesus showed that he was the Messiah King, the one promised in the Old Testament. So what he's saying to the people by the way he came in and then what he's saying is, I am God. I am the one that came. I'm the one that was promised by the Old Testament and now I am here. And so he ran people out of the temple who were not honoring the purpose of the temple, showing his authority. He prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. He condemned the religious leaders who were in charge in the temple and, by the way, claimed certainly, don't miss that, to be the promised Messiah King. At the end of chapter 23, after his confrontation with all of the religious leaders, those who were practicing religion, the one that he had said, your religion is empty, and he gives the woes to them in chapter 23. At the end of that chapter, down in verse 37, Jesus shows that he has great compassion for Israel. He says to them there, look at it with me, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a root under her wings and you would not. Jesus, showing great compassion, says, I wanted to gather you together, but you refused. And so then he pronounces judgment on Israel. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. He says, not only the temple, your house is where he is, but I think it's broader than that. All of Jerusalem, all of Israel, you're desolate apart from knowing God. And so his great compassion, his clear judgment upon Israel. So chapter 24 begins right there. And what Jesus is doing in verse 1 of chapter 24, he is leaving the temple. Now notice what Matthew does here. Jesus left the temple and was going away. He doesn't want you to miss the symbolism of what's happening. I mentioned to you just a moment ago in Ezekiel chapter 11, the glory of God removed, is removed from the temple. So we get our word Ichabod. It's the glory of God is gone. It's empty. The temple is no longer a place where God meets with his people. He has removed his glory. Here, Jesus has been in the temple. He removes himself from the temple. So Matthew says, don't miss the imagery. Jesus was going away and he left the temple. And where does he go? Verse 2 he is up on, or excuse me, verse 3, he's up on the Mount of Olives. That's exactly where the glory of God went and rested in Ezekiel. So there's a clear symbolism here in what Jesus is doing. And so he has left. And Matthew wants you to see this Jesus. The presence of God is there and he's gone. And so as they go up the mountain, Jesus' disciples, Galileans, who may or may not have ever seen the temple again, or certainly are before, are certainly wowed by it as they've been here with Jesus during this time, and the disciples come to him, and they point out in verse 1 the buildings of the temple. Look at the majesty of this temple. And so as they point that out to Jesus, Jesus makes a statement that sets up our text for today. Look at verse 2 with me. But Jesus answered them, you see all these, don't you? 
Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus prophesies to them. They say, Jesus, look at the glory and majesty of the temple. Jesus says, you see those? It's going to be destroyed. Now he's already prophesied the destruction of the city. Now he's actually saying the temple that I just left, the presence of God is removed from there. That is going to be destroyed. And that, friends, prompts his prophecy of the destruction of the temple prompts his disciples to ask a question. They are perplexed. Put, in your, put yourself in the disciples' situation for just a moment. Jesus has already told them on four occasions that he's going to be arrested and killed in Jerusalem. So they know this man is here in Jerusalem. He's our leader. He's going to be killed. Now he tells them, and the temple's going to be destroyed. And so they ask him two questions. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and here's their two questions. Tell us. Question number one, when will these things be? Question number two, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, don't miss those two questions this morning. They set the context for what we're going to study. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, the word there, I'm not going to get into a lot of the specifics of uh, Greek language in the text this morning. But the word there, I will use the return of Christ most of the time through the sermon. Because one of the times we see Jesus coming is not the return, not the parousia, the visitation of Christ. So we'll talk about that as the return. When, what is the sign of your return? Now, a couple of things about the questions. First, I believe the disciples saw these as one event. I think they couldn't imagine the destruction of the temple... Apart from the end, apart from the end of all times, if the temple is going to be destroyed, this place where the people of God have worshipped for millennia now, if it's going to be destroyed, certainly that's the end. I think they put them together and thought, when one happens, the other one has to be there. And there are a lot of interpreters of this text that will say to you that Jesus kind of puts those two together as well. And it's kind of like a lot of, I heard prophecy explained to me when I was... Um, Learning the text, my mentor would always say to me, prophecy, Stephen, is kind of like looking out at a mountain range. You see a bunch of peaks of the mountains. They look just side by side. But when you find out, there are hundreds of miles between the two peaks. But from our perspective, we see both of them. So I think that there, there are interpreters that say, we're going to look at these and they're going to look side by side. But God is putting them apart. We know he's putting them apart. It's been 2,000 years since Jerusalem has been destroyed. And Jesus has not yet come back. And so we're going to look at this text and think, okay, he's answering two questions. Here's the big debate. What part of this text deals with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple? And what part of this text is pointing to the coming, the return of Christ? So now as we get to the heart of our text, we'll deal with both of those. God is bringing judgment on the temple, on Israel, on those who are religiously practicing without a relationship. And that's going to be seen in the destruction of the temple. And then those who, by the way, practice religion but have no relationship. And that destruction, by the way, is both decisive and devastating in Jerusalem. We'll talk about it in a minute. But Jesus also gives instructions to his disciples that will be helpful not only for the disciples who lived in that day during the destruction, but they will be helpful for us, those of us who today still wait on the return of the king. We find help in these verses. And so, while their interpretation and their meaning may be confusing, the point of the text is certainly not. I'll say to you again this morning, this is probably one of the most debated texts of Scripture, certainly Matthew's Gospel, maybe the whole New Testament. And so, let me tell you what there's agreement on. There's definite agreement 
on the fact that Jesus is addressing both questions, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and his return. There's disagreement on when he's speaking of which event, when he's speaking on the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and when he's speaking on his return. And so when you leave here today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit to go home and read Matthew 24 and 25. And at the end of all of that, you may disagree over which statements deal with destruction among yourselves. You may even disagree with me and which parts deal with his return. But the point of the text, I think we will be set together on it. Here it is. Followers of Jesus must persevere in the midst of deception, disaster, betrayal, and even death while they patiently wait upon his return and, and passionately witness concerning his gospel. Let me say that part again. Followers of Jesus must persevere. There's the point. We must persevere in the midst of deception, disaster, betrayal, and even death while we patiently wait upon his return and passionately witness concerning his gospel. Before we unpack that, let me give an attempt at a broad outline at this text, all right? So I'm going to do that on two levels. First level, two questions. I believe that there is at least a good number of scholars that would believe and agree with me that, that verses 4 through 28 deal with the destruction of the temple. And verses 36 and following all the way through chapter 25, which we'll deal with next week, deal with the, the return of Christ. And so we'll read those a little separate. We'll do 25 next week. But we'll read the first ones together. But what I want you to see is that leaves verses 29 through 35, which are absolutely problematic. I've read them 10,000 times this week. I hope you'll read them again and again and again. And I don't know if you come to an absolute conclusion that you can come to that and you share with me. But let's read verses 4 through 28 together, knowing that Jesus is answering the question, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, and Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then... They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his coat. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or, in the, or on the Sabbath or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. 
So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be. I believe that that is a transition in uh, the gospel, at least a transition point in this state, in this um, discourse by Christ. And so, I want to pick that up and say that is the destruction of the temple. When you get down to verse 36, look at it with me. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. I think that then points us at, clearly from verse 36 on, we're dealing with the return of Christ, which leaves these verses in the middle. I want you to look at them with me in verses 29 through 35. I'll read them to us, and then I want to make three comments. Just bring out the three major parts about it before we jump into the application of this text. Verse 29. Notice where he starts. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Well, what days? When the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple. So when the destruction is imminent, he says immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power, powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth, uh, excuse me, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts, out, and puts out its leaves, you know the summer's near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the problematic section. Why? Verse 29. Immediately after those days, the tribulation of those days, we're talking about the temple there. And so it seems to be that Jesus is going to say this is back then. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. However, you get to verse 30 and you see that he says you will see the coming of the Son of Man. Now, in your English translation, that just reads just like every other time it says the coming of the Son of Man. But in the Greek, that's a different word for coming. Every other time we've seen it in this text, it is parousia, the visitation, the return. This one is a different Greek word. And so I'm wondering if that is not part of, you'll see the coming of the Son of Man in the church, through the church, the presence. Maybe, maybe not. Do you agree with me, disagree with me there? I'll leave that up to you. But then you get back down to verse 34, and this takes the cake for me. Jesus says in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That one seems to me to be uh, unquestionable because we're not part of that generation and Christ still hasn't come back. And so I believe that perhaps all the way through verse 35 is the destruction of the temple. Now again, we can disagree on some of the time frame there. Let's go back and look a little more closely at some of the textual cues and look at some of what he's saying. In verses 4 through 8, he says these are the beginnings of the birth things. They're not the birth things. They've asked... For when will these things happen? Jesus says, you're going to see these things, but they're just the beginning. Then in verse 9, he says, then they'll deliver you over, verse 10. And then Matthew's giving us cues that this is coming chronologically here. And then in verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation. In verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, that is the abomination of desolation, persecution by Rome, we get to this point where we're believing Jesus is saying, the temple and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and these are the signs for that. 
And then verse 32 and 33 says, learn that lesson. You know that summer is near. So when you see these things, know that that's here. <coughs> and then he says, this generation will not pass away. And I think the transition is in verse 36 because it's a clear transition. But concerning that day. So here's what I think Jesus is answering. There are clear ways for you to know that the destruction is coming. And I'm going to give you instructions on how to deal with that tribulation. But as far as when Jesus returns, look at what he says. Verse 36, nobody knows. Not the angels in heaven. Not even the Son of Man. Not even Jesus knows, but the Father only. And so when the Father says, go get your bride, I'm going. But nobody knows that day. But you can know what to do when this tribulation is coming. So, let me go forward. What do we learn from the text? Here we go. Followers of Jesus must persevere in the face of deception, disaster, betrayal, and even death while they patiently wait upon his return and passionately witness concerning his gospel. Let me unpack that statement. Number one, followers of Jesus must persevere in the face of deception. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says that there will be those who will come to deceive you. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name and say, I'm the Christ, and they will lead me astray. My friends, there are people even to this day that are leading people astray. And in those first moments after Christ's ascension, in the first moments after his resurrection, there will be people that will try to lead believers astray. And that has occurred all the way up until our day. You know, I could call names in here of people who have started religions, some of them named after them, some of them not. But they call people and say, oh, yeah, you can listen to Jesus, but I have a later word. I have a sure word. I am the one that you need to listen to. I am the Messiah. And they start an entire religion asking people to come out to them, to follow them. And Jesus says here, many will come in my name, proclaiming, claiming to be the Messiah. I am the Messiah, they will say. I am the one you need to listen to. And Jesus says, do not be led astray. You're not in verse 11. If that's the birth pains when it was happening, now during the tribulation, verse 11, he says it will happen there too. He says that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. But not only then, even further in time, down in uh, the part about the abomination of desolation in verses 23 and following, I want to show you this. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, verse 23, there he is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Friends, you know that Satan rebelled against God and he's an angel and he Satan, the enemy of God, can do signs and wonders. And he says, Jesus says, there will be those who will come and they're going to do signs. They're going to say, look, I am the Messiah. I can do these things. They're going to do signs and wonders. And he said, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even those who follow after Christ. And so, my friends, we must persevere in our faith in the face of deception. It will come. And specifically here, let me assure us this morning, those of us who are in faith in Christ, that we have a sure word. Jesus has said to us in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. So anybody that you hear, any teaching that you ever hear, you hold it up against the word of God, including your pastor's teaching. Because God's words will never pass away. Do not be deceived. Do not be led away from this gospel, from trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul will say, any other gospel is no gospel. Let those who are teaching it be anathema. Uh, here, we need to understand, church, you have been called to persevere in the face of Deception. 
I want you to know what Paul or what Jesus says here in verse 27. He says, don't think that somebody claims to be the Christ, that they're telling you the truth. He says, don't believe it. He says, for as the lightning goes from the east to the west and the sky and lights up the entire sky, and you don't question whether that was lightning or not, you're not going to have to question when the Son of Man comes back. You're going to know it. You're going to know it. So Matt's not in here for me. Yeah, yes, Matt's in here for me to pick on. So when Jesus returns, you're not going to have to come to the church and ask Matt, what was that? Did that happen? I understand because I'm not going to be here. When Jesus comes back, I'm going to <laughs> He says to us here, I, I don't know if you've realized this or not. It's been in my life, I, I love lightning. All right, so some things I, sometimes I do foolish things with lightning. I love to watch lightning light up the sky. So I'll go stand on the back porch. Jenny's come out before and said, what are you doing? So you ever hear I got struck by lightning? I was probably just watching it, glorifying God in it. I love to see the fireworks of the Lord and that. But it seems to me over the last couple of months there have been more lightning storms than I've seen in years and years, maybe my entire life. And a couple of weeks ago I was just watching for I'm just watching for lightning in the sky. And man, to, to see a, a bolt of lightning go across the sky and just light up the night just like it was dead. Now, when you're watching it for it, it's one thing. When you're riding down the road or you're sitting somewhere and God sends a bolt of lightning that lights up the night sky just like it's day, you don't turn around and say, man, I wonder what that was. You know exactly what it was. And Jesus says, if people are trying to deceive you, understand that when I do return, by the way, the word in verse 27 is his parousia. When I return, when I come back, nobody's going to question you. My friends, our Savior came the first time as a baby in a manger, and it was announced to the shepherds. When he comes back, there will not need to be announcements to shepherds because nobody will question who is in charge. Nobody will question who is the king forever when our king returns. You won't have to be wondering, Matt, could you tell me where he is? Could you tell me if he's over here? Was that actually the return? And if anybody says, oh, Christ has already returned, Jesus says, don't believe him. Because they don't know. When I come back, you won't have to wonder what happened. The king is here. And you will know. And so don't be deceived. Persevere. And know, listen to what he says in there. Know this. I told you beforehand it's going to happen. So my friends, be ready for deception. Now I have to move or I'm going to run out of time. Let's move. Secondly, followers of Jesus must persevere not only in the face of deception, but secondly in the face of disaster. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, during that time, um, you should know that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Here's what he says. There's going to be disaster all throughout time, and people are going to say, oh, there's wars and rumors of wars. It's there. But notice Jesus says, don't be uh, one who gives up in that phase. Persevere through it. He says, that's not the end. Just because you hear of nations falling, some of us think, oh my, if America elects so-and-so or so-and-so, some of you might be on both sides of that. If you elect, I'm on the side of, if we elect either one of them, we're in trouble. But let's just leave that alone. If you are on one or the other of them and you say, oh, if we, if we elect that person, then this nation is just, it's gone. 
My friends, as believers, you don't lose hope because nations will rise and nations will fall, including this one. But our king will be king forever. We don't give up. We don't quit. We don't lose hope because one nation rises or another. They have risen and fallen throughout all history. And nations fight each other. And they do all kinds of things. And Jesus says, when you hear of all that, don't worry. Don't be alarmed. It must happen. I'm coming. And when I come, there will be a clear king. And I'll be a good king, and I'll be a king forever and ever and ever. So friends, know this. Persevere in the face of disaster. Whether it is a disaster in your life like famine, or earthquakes, or tornadoes, or fire, or anything else. He says, persevere. That's not a sign that I'm coming or that I've already come. It's not a sign of that. When I come, you won't question whether I'm here or not. So persevere, follower of Jesus. Thirdly, persevere in the face of betrayal. Look at verse 10. Probably one of the saddest verses in this entire thing. What happens in verse 10? Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Friends, you heard it two weeks ago when we were in Matthew chapter 10. Dr. Quarles brought to our attention the fact that it's not getting easier to be a believer in this nation. Friends, I, I want you to know that it, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult. As a matter of fact, across the world right now, perhaps not in America yet, and we should praise God for that grace, but across the world right now, there are people who proclaim the name of Christ for the very first time and they're ostracized by their family. Some of them killed for calling the name of Christ. Church, there's a, there's a reality. Do you know I pray for you, and I especially pray for all the children. Look around. Did you look around the breakfast and see all the children? I pray a couple of things for our children weekly in this church. Lord, redeem them. Make them warriors for you. Lord, keep them pure and holy. And send them. Send them. I pray that some of our children will be sent across the nations. I pray that some of them will know that they will be sent right across the street. And whether they're sent across the street in this nation or whether they're sent to the nations, I believe they are going to face days. And we may be sitting in a sanctuary with some people who will give their lives for the cause of Christ. And they will be betrayed. And that's how their life will be taken. What's it say? Verse 10. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Look at verse 12. Because lawlessness will be, in, will be increased, the love of many will grow calm. That's why we betray one another. We'll trade our love for Christ for our love for something else. We'll be willing to betray. It could be possible that even in this room, certainly in this nation, there will be brother that will betray brother, sister that will betray sister, fathers that will betray children, children that will betray mothers and fathers. That's what he said, wasn't it? We've already looked at Jesus' teaching on that. Friends, we must persevere even if we are betrayed. Remain faithful. That leads us to the fourth one. Followers of Jesus must persevere in the face of death. Look at verse 9. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. Church, that's the reality that's coming. It was the reality for these Jews waiting on the destruction of Jerusalem. When Rome came in, it was horrible tribulation. He mentions in verse 15 when he's talking about this very tribulation that's going to come. He says to them that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, of course, and you and I read in Daniel's, uh, um, Daniel's prophecy that there will be a foreign ruler to enter Jerusalem and defile the temple. 
approximately 40 years after Jesus says the words that we're looking at right now in AD 70, the Roman army begins to surround Jerusalem and they overtook Jerusalem. The Roman army destroyed the temple, made sacrifices to false gods in this temple, declaring Titus, the Roman emperor, to be supreme. And therein, I believe, lies at least what Daniel is, is referring to, this abomination of desolation that took the place that was meant for Yahweh, and they worshiped Titus, they worshiped false gods there, and then Daniel says in chapter 12, verse 1, there will be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation. And Jesus says, I believe referring to Daniel 12, 1, down in verse 21, during that time, he says, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The, the uh, historian Josephus describes the savagery, slaughter, disease, famine that happens then that marked the, the attack of Rome on the Jewish people during those years. Church, parents resorted to cannibalism with their own children who died in the siege. And Jesus says there will ne has never been tribulation like you're getting ready to see. Historians tell us that some uh, could be up, upward of a million people killed during this Roman siege and attack on Jerusalem. And you know that Nero and other emperors hated Christianity and killed many, many Christians. And Jesus says, even in the face of death, even in the face of death, church, persevere. Church, it could be that there would be a time that you and I would be called to put our life on the line for Christ. I pray that we persevere. I pray not just for our children. I pray for all of us. If it would come in our lifetime, persevere. Persevere. That tribulation that happened there very well seems to be coming for this world and already is in places in our world. So my friends, we learn followers of Jesus must persevere in the face of deception, disaster, betrayal, and even death. And I want to ask you, so we get to a close of this text, stay with me. Why? Why can we persevere? Why can we persevere in the face of deception and disaster and betrayal? Why can we persevere even in the face of death? Go back to verse 13 with me. As Jesus speaks to us here and he tells about this time. Look at what he says in verse 13. It was, then, it was, it was true then. It's true now. But the one who endures, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Why can I persevere? Because my king has made me his. Because he has redeemed me from my sin. He has made me pure. So he says, the one who endures to the end. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't let them lead you astray. Don't be alarmed at what you see. Persevere in your faith. So you ask, how can I do that, Pastor? How can I do that? I think there are three answers in this text. I'm going to give them to you quickly. And we're done. Three answers in this text of how I can persevere. Number one, we persevere by waiting patiently. By waiting patiently. I'm going to read the rest of our text for this morning, beginning down in verse 36. I'm not going to make a comment on it, but know that what Jesus is saying here is wait patiently. And next week, we're going to pick up right here. So come back next week. We're going to talk about how we look for the coming of Christ. Wait patiently. Verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed away and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. My friends, it's been 2,000 years and people say, y'all still waiting on the return of Christ? Yes, I am. Why? Because the King said He was coming back. And I'm waiting. Because He's my King. And He'll be my King forever. Wait patiently. Secondly, persevere by praying persistently. In the midst of that talk on tribulation, verse 20, He says this, that tribulation which will be worse than ever, He says, Pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath. Pray for mercy. Pray for mercy for the Son. So my friends, if you want to persevere, wait patiently, but pray persistently. And then finally, persevere by witnessing passionately. By witnessing passionately. Go back to verse 14. Go back to verse 14. He says this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Friends, when Jesus leaves... In Matthew chapter 28, he leaves us a commission. And it's this, make disciples of all nations. Here he leaves us a promise. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world. So here's what you and I do. We wait patiently on our king and accomplish the mission that he's given us. So friends, that's what we're to do. Do you know what? You can focus on who's going to be president of this nation. You can focus on what's going on in Turkey or Iraq or the Middle East or Africa or wherever else. You can focus on your own money and your own job and your own life and your own fame and your own uh, uh, reputation. You can focus on whatever you want to focus on in this world. And I promise you, you will get discouraged, you will uh, get alarmed, and you'll be led astray. Friends, what I think you need to do is you wait patiently and pray persistently. Let's focus on accomplishing the mission of our city. And you will be able to persevere. You see, what I found is when people are focusing on everything else and going around all the things the world tells us to go after, <coughs> we rarely persevere in it. I've met people and you've met people that want to get rich quick, and every week it's a different get rich quick scheme. I've met people who want their name to be out there, and every week it's another it's another way to get their name out there. I've met people who are who are seeking contentment, who are seeking uh, 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 happiness and satisfaction in life, and they're always going after something else. They never persevere in anything. Friends, we know the one that is going to be king forever, and he says, "Tribulation's coming." And so am I. Persevere, whether it be deception, disaster, betrayal, or death. You persevere because I'm coming.